Hello and welcome to The Intellectual Bend. I am David Gonzalez of Weird Fish Media and this is my show. Hey everybody, today we have something special for you. I am going to feature a talk I gave at one of the Faith to Influence retreats in 2018 on the topic of identity and walking in closer relationship with God. It was a good time and I hope you enjoy it. Here is the thing about identity. There's more here than meets the eye, more here than most psychologists talk about more here than we can understand. It's a profound point, so I'll say it. This point that our very selfhood is by nature unstable and in question, this is a point that flabbergasts and discombobulates many people, something like Plato's theory of forms in metaphysics. The point is that the human self is not a given, an object, an essence, whose essential nature is unchangeable and guaranteed, like everything else in the cosmos. Triangles can never be non-triangular, and rocks are always guaranteed to be rocky, and grass is always grassy, and dogs are always doggy, and cats are always catty. But humans can be inhuman. We alone can fail to achieve our nature. Our nature is a task given to us to achieve, not a fact given to us to simply receive. Here is the traditional point quoted from Boethius. Whatever is must be good. Ontologically good, he means not necessarily morally good. It follows from this that whatever loses its goodness loses its being. Thus wicked men cease to be what they were. To give oneself to evil is to lose one's human essence. Just as virtue can raise a person above human nature, vice can lower those whom it has seduced from the condition of men beneath human nature. For this reason, anyone whom you find transformed by vice cannot really be counted a man, or for that matter a hobbit. Gollum is an ex-hobbit, a failed hobbit, and the ring rays are ex-men, or unmen, to use C.S. Lewis's chilling term from Paralandra. Boethius goes on to say, The man who is driven by avarice is a wolf. The restless, angry man who spends his life in quarrels we should compare to a dog. The treacherous conspirator who steals by fraud may be likened to a fox. The man who is ruled by intemperate anger is correctly thought to have the soul of a lion. The fearful and timid man who trembles without reason is like a deer. The lazy, stupid fellow is like an ass. The volatile, inconsistent man who continually changes directions is like a bird. The man who is sunk in foul lust is trapped in the pleasures of a filthy sow. Now, those aren't just clever analogies. He's not doing exegesis, he's doing exegesis. He's looking at people who are addicted to a vice and saying they're losing their human nature. In this way, he concludes, anyone who abandons virtue ceases to be a man since he cannot share in the divine nature, becomes instead a beast, cannot share in the divine nature. What does he mean there? Well, I think he's thinking of the image of God. If we are made in the image of God, we are remote, creaturely finite participations in the divine nature. We are something like God, imago Dei. What is God? I, the name of a person. So we are persons. Now if you're overcome by vice, what do you lose? You lose the divine image. You lose the holiest thing of all, your personality. C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams were both quite striking on this. Their picture of hell was a picture where you can no longer say I. 
You can no longer utter the holy word. You have lost yourself. And Tolkien shows us such a person in Gollum. He gradually loses the ability to say I. He says we. Tolkien, like C.S. Lewis, knew Zensut, this mysterious desire or, or longing for something we know not what, something beyond this world. And like Lewis, he thought that this leads us to our true selves, but it means forgetting ourselves. Peter Kraft says that Zenzut is self-forgetful. It's half of the paradox that if you lose yourself, you'll find it. And vice is the other half. If you find yourself, if you grasp yourself, you'll lose it. When the objective we desire by Zenzut is really God or divine attributes like truth and goodness and beauty, you can't possess that object. The object is not possessable. It can only possess you. And paradoxically, only then are we fulfilled. Only then is our essence stabilized, when we don't possess the object we desire, but it possesses us. On the other hand, the violation of the first and greatest commandment, which is idolatry, that is, making anything other than God our God, that's making our goal possessable. And then you possess it, and then you're undone. That's what happened in Eden. Once we laid our hands on the fruit we desired, the horrible effects took place immediately. It laid its hands on us. The self was unselfed, not filled or fulfilled, but emptied, devastated. The object, the apple, grew into a god, and we shrank into its slaves. We exchanged places. We became the objects. It's it. We exchanged places. We became the objects, the its, and it became the subject, the I, the Lord, the God. We found our identity in what was less than ourselves, in something we could possess, So we were possessed by our possessions, or by our possessiveness. That's precisely the psychology of Saron and the ring. We who began as the Adam, or man, became the Gollum, the unman. I think it's no accident that Tolkien chose the name Gollum for Schmegel. In the Jewish legend, of course, Gollum is the unman. Gollum illustrates one half of the paradox. Frodo and Sam illustrate the other half. They attain themselves and save their selves only because they give themselves away, for others, for the Shire, for the world. Not for some abstract cause, but for each other and for the Shire. Those are concrete things. In contrast, Gollum is obsessed with his cause, with his possession of the ring. He almost has no self left. He's so selfish. He talks to himself more than to others. He makes no distinction between himself and his precious. He's confused about who he is. He speaks of himself in the third person. Don't let them hurt us, precious. Listen to that. Don't let them hurt us, precious. It's the ring that's now the precious, and Gollum has lost his preciousness, his value. He has become its slave. It has become his master. It's fetishism. You worship the fetish. You let the object become your subject, your master. In fact, the object has now become the person, the self, the actor, and Gollum has become its object, its it. He put his soul inside the fetish, exactly as Saron did when he made the ring, so that without the thing, his soul is literally torn in two. He's nothing. He can't distinguish himself from the ring. He is the ring. The person has become a thing. He's lost his soul. That's the psychology of damnation. Tolkien makes a big point in a couple of his letters about the motive of Saron, and implies that there, and implies that there's a psychology and social parallel, a parallel between that and something we're doing in modern Western civilization. 
Quote, he says, when Saron forged his ring, he put into it much of his power and therefore much of his self, since power is what he identified with or found self-identity in. Thus, for Saron, as for Gollum, to lose the ring is to lose his self, and one who has lost his self, who has only emptiness and ashes for his self, will always demand to reduce all other selves to emptiness and ashes. And that's why Saron must reduce all Middle-earth to ashes, to his ashes, to himself. That's the death wish. You find that, obviously, in tyrants like Hitler, but that's what we do when we identify with our stuff. George MacDonald says, A man is enslaved to whatever he cannot part with that is less than himself. That's scary. Sauron is uncomfortably familiar. He's only an exaggeration or an enlargement of us, or at least of one possibility for us. Here's how Lewis expresses the point of the volatility of self, or the fragility of a self, again in Mere Christianity, which I think, by the way, is an absolute masterpiece, one of the most important books of the 20th century. Quote, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, he means the I, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long are slowly turning this central thing into either a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing towards the one state or the other. And of course, you'll think, if you've ever read The Weight of Glory, of the greatest paragraph Lewis ever wrote, the last paragraph of the Golden Sermon on the Mount, about there being no ordinary creatures. Every time you interact with another human being, you are helping to turn yourself and that other creature into either something so heavenly that if you saw it, now you would be strongly tempted to fall down and worship it, or else something that's so horrible that you can meet it only in a nightmare. And we are always helping each other to one of those two destinies in every little choice we make. One other quote from Mere Christianity about this point, about the volatility of the self, this is the very last paragraph of the book. Until you have given up yourself to Christ, you will not have a real self. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away, blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. He says elsewhere that's the definition of humility. Humility does not mean to have a low view of yourself. It means to have no view of yourself. Having a low view of yourself is miserable. Psychologists know that. So what's the solution? Don't look at yourself. Take your temperature when you're sick. Otherwise, look at other people and God. They're much more interesting. Here is some more sage advice. The first step is to try to forget about yourself altogether. Your real self, your new self, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come only when you're looking for him. Does that sound strange? It shouldn't be. The same principle holds for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you can never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of an impression you're making. Even in literature and art, 
no one who bothers about originality can ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it's been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. This principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose yourself and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes, every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died can ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Look for Christ and you'll find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Or, as the most practical man who ever lived once said, and this is my candidate for the most practical sentence ever uttered in the history of the world, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own self? People hear that and resist it because it's direct and challenging, because it's familiar. They read Tolkien's stories and see it, and they can't resist it. All right, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you're interested to learn more about what I do, you can check me out at www.weirdfishmedia.com. That's weirdfishmedia.com. And you can probably find me on all the other social media platforms out there. Until the next time, this is The Intellectual Bend. Catch you later. 